Okay, so tonight, tonight we will, we're going to finish up chapter 27 tonight, which was a very, you know, very hopeful scripture. The, the series of, of chapters that we're in right now are very future oriented, it's talking about the millennium, even when we get into some prophecies here in chapter 28, 29, um, and the early 30s, you know, very, very hopeful because as we're going to see, God is God will show us what is going to happen, and of course, the end result is the the magnificent return of Jesus Christ, the establishment of a government on earth that will be good for all of mankind, and we see people turning to God. You know, for for the most part, um, we know from Revelation that not everyone will will, uh, but we 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 can pray that everyone will see the goodness of God, and certainly that we do in our lives. So. Just to bring us up to speed to where we were last week in Isaiah 27, we were talking about um, people returning. Remember, we talked about the vineyard, revisited, you know, revisited chapter five, where God was talking about his people. Here we find the vineyard talked about again in, in chapter 27. He talks about Israel coming back after having lost their uh, lands, being scattered throughout all the nations. Um you remember in, in verse five there, he he kind of gives gives a, a you know kind of the means of reconciliation between man and God in verse five. Um, take hold of my strength, look to God, look to God, you know, cling to him, make peace with God, and he'll make peace with us. It's a it's a very simple but a very beautiful thing of what God wants is for all men to be reconciled to him. So in last week we ended in chapter nine in, or not chapter nine, in verse nine of chapter 27. And in that verse, it was talking about how the sin of Jacob would be covered. And basically he would be putting away all the idols from among him. Uh, it says there in verse nine, uh, he will make all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust. Wooden images and incense altar shall not stand. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God telling Israel, you know, don't look at what the foreign lands are doing. Don't cling to their gods. And when they turn back to them, just like you and I, clear the landscape of the altars, clear, clear the landscape of all the other gods, serve God alone. And that is exactly the picture that he's showing there in uh, verses 7, 8, and 9. And we came to verse 10. You know, Israel will return to God is is what he says there they will they will beat those altars to chalk and they will get rid of all those images and incense and yet in verse 10 he says that the fortified city will be desolate and verse verse 10 and 11 are interesting verses because they can mean a couple of different things some commentators will say that verse 10 is talking about jerusalem now we'll look at a couple of verses uh, about jerusalem because jerusalem was desolate they were at the time that they fell to the babylonians they were decimated people were carried off captive um and so even when they came back the city the city was desolate and it could have a future implication as well on the other hand it could be all the other cities that we talked about in those chapters 13 to 23 that talked about how all these other cities would fall and be left desolate. So could be one, could be uh, Israel, the house of Israel that he's talking about, could be the foreign cities, or it could just be the world at that time. But every city, every city is going to suffer and every city is going to suffer desolation and being brought low because of the sins that are in them. So let's look at, at verse 10 here. It says, yet the fortified city will be desolate. So even though Israel repents and turns to God in verse 9, yet the fortified city will be desolate. 
Fortified would be a strong city, something that is difficult to conquer. The habitation will be forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. So let's look at a few verses, because in Jeremiah, it does talk about Jerusalem being left desolate. So if we turn over to Jeremiah 40, um, 44, look at my notes here, we're in verse 11. Um, hmm. Yeah, Jeremiah 44. I, yeah, I'm, re I'm reading ahead. I'm sorry, just to, 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 to refresh my mind of what I just wrote just a day ago. Jeremiah 44. Um, yeah, Jeremiah 44, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt. Now, you'll remember that that when they were, when Babylon was conquering, there was a group of Jews that were going to go to Egypt. God had told them not to go to Egypt, stay there, stay there and serve Babylon. They went anyway. So here in verse chapter 44, he's talking to those people. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Mignol, at Tapanese, Naph, and in the country of Pathros, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. You have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a desolation, and no one dwells in them. Why? Because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they didn't know, they nor, they nor you nor your fathers. However, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Don't do this abominable thing that I hate. But they didn't listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they are wasted and desolate as it is this day. So Jerusalem, you know, you'll remember in, in, uh, earlier on in Ahaz's time, God said, Assyria will not enter into Jerusalem. They will come, they will come, and they will be close to the borders, and they will taunt you, and they will terrify you, but they will not enter Jerusalem, and Assyria didn't. Jerusalem didn't learn their lesson. Judah didn't learn their lesson, and so Babylon did. Did God allowed Babylon to come in and conquer Jerusalem, and that city lay desolate. So when we read in Isaiah 27 about, yet the city will lie desolate, yes, they returned, but the city is still there. It has been conquered, and God always explains the reason why. He always says why it happened, not because they always, people turn away from God, and he withholds their blessings and takes it away um, from them, from them. So we can also talk, you know, so we could, we could turn some, some other verses about Jerusalem being conquered as well, but well, let's go back and we can we can talk about some of the cities that we read about already in Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah 13, because these other cities, the cities of all those nations and lands around Israel that we spoke of, that God said will lie desolate, and those lands were. We look at Isaiah 13, is the burden against Babylon, and eventually Babylon is left desolate as well. They God uses them to punish Judah. They become prideful. They taunt that God brought the Medes and Persians in and, and humbled Babylon. So in verse 9, um, verse 
Yeah, um, Isaiah 13, verse 9. Yeah, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. From, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light will not cause its light to shine. So we're talking clearly about an end time. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible, and I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. I will shake the heavens. The earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. So, you know, we could we could rehearse many, many things that we've talked about over the last several weeks. But when we talk about this fortified city, you know, it could be the whole world that God is talking about. The Lord, the world has been just laid desolate. Now, it did happen in that area of the world. In the Middle East, you remember when we were back in the Middle East and we were talking about the earth and 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 at that time it was the earth as it was known then and basically it was the Middle East and that northern part of the Medi above the um, Mediterranean Sea. But in the end time it's the whole world God talks about the world being desolate, and so you have this fortified city and when Christ returns and Israel is brought back to their promised land and they are now repentant and humble before God. Yet you have this desolation that is still all around. And you remember, well, we can go forward to Isaiah 61, where God says they will rebuild the four, they will rebuild the ruins, the, the cities, not all the cities, some like Babylon will never be rebuilt. So you have this, this picture, if we go back to Isaiah 27, 10, they're talking about, okay, God, the desolation has occurred because mankind has rejected God, because the, mankind has rejected God. And yet you have the fortified cities that are still laying desolate, and there's just uh, there's just livestock that is habitating in them. As we talk about in Babylon, you know we see we see that uh, that picture that man, that Babylon will never be rebuilt. It will just be it'll just be animals that graze there. So if we look at verse eleven, then we continue in that in Isaiah twenty-seven. It says, "When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire." For it's a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. Now, in verse 11, it looks like God is talking about Israel because the verbiage that's there in verse 11 can draw us back to another prophecy back in Deuteronomy 28 that talks about what happens when Israel turns from God and no longer follows him. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 20 or not 28 Deuteronomy 32 that song of Moses that we've we've turned to a few times as we've been in these prophecies and you remember the latter chapters of Deuteronomy talk about the the latter end of 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 Israel uh near the end time in Deuteronomy 32 we see verbiage that is very similar to what God is inspiring Isaiah to write in in Isaiah 27. It says they, of course, speaking of Israel, because that's who Moses is speaking to here, they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they would understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How one, how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? So we see this time. You know, when you look at 
we'll come back to chapter 28 here in a few verses later on we get into Isaiah 28 where God is talking about it through Moses you know in the latter days here's what's going to happen you're going to turn from God and these blessings that you have gotten used to enjoying are going to be taken away and there's going to be this devastation that comes upon the people and we learn just how important God's blessing is and when it's no longer with us how difficult life is when we're living in a world that doesn't that doesn't have God in it anymore. So if we go back to Isaiah 27, we say it's a people, it's a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. That's a very sad, it's a very sad day, you know, when we look at that and and think, you know, it's a very sad day for God too, that he has to bring his people to the point where they have to suffer the consequences and, and find out what life without God is like. Not a pleasant thing at all. Now, you know, if we look at verse 11, you may have you may have thought when its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. And that may that may remind you of, of Romans, Romans 11. So let's let's go forward into the New Testament in Romans 11. Later on, we get into chapter. 28. We're going to look at a verse that kind of shows us how God builds our knowledge, how God builds the Bible, how God has built, you know, civilization, our experiences, man's experience leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. But here in in um, chapter 11, we find we find Paul talking about God, you know, not God casting away his people, if you will. The Jews had always seen themselves as God's people. And yet when Jesus Christ came, some some people believed in Jesus Christ, but others didn't. They just sort of, they just didn't follow him. And so you had some who were understanding and some didn't, and you have this split in the Jewish nation. And we see this in, in verse 16. Uh, we see this in verse 16 where where Paul talks about the branches, the branches that are being cut off, similar to what we've just read here in, in verse 11 of, of, of Isaiah 27, when his boughs are withered, they will be broken off. In Romans 11 and verse 16, we read this, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. The basic concept, right? And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Now he's talking about the um, Gentiles here being grafted into the olive tree because some of them, some of the Israelites, those branches have been broken off. They no longer, they do not believe in Jesus Christ as a savior. It's the same situation we have with the Jews, uh, the, the Jews today. So he's talking about, of course, the Gentiles, as they understand, they're grafted into the olive tree. So it says here, um, being a wild olive tree, if you were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, don't boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you don't support the root, but the root supports you. Our root is in Jesus Christ. We have no reason to be proud of anything about us. It's God who gives us the knowledge. It's God who gives us the, the even ability to understand the Bible. It has nothing to do with us except his mercy on us and his Holy Spirit that leads us to understanding. You will say, verse 19, then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. 
don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if. And I always say that's one of the biggest little words in the Bible. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, which when Christ returns, there will be Israel that does repent. Ezekiel 7 tells us that Israel will loathe themselves for what they have done. They also, if they don't continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So what God is saying is he's opened our, our minds. He's made us family. He has made us part of those branches that need to remain very well connected to Jesus Christ. Just like in John 15, where it talks about stay attached to the vine. You know, but but don't let pride, don't think it's about you. Just be thankful and humble and, and humble and grateful to God that he has opened our minds to be part of what, what we now know and understand. Some don't, but he can bring them back in as well. And we know when Christ returns, as we've read in Joel 2, Jeremiah 31, his spirit will be poured out on all nations and they will understand and we hope the vast majority of them will come to understand God. So if we go back to Isaiah 27, we see this, this, this kind of hint of what the New Testament will talk about. You know, you cannot understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Can't understand the latter parts of the Old Testament without understanding the early. You know, oftentimes it's said that if you, you can't understand the Bible unless you understand the book of Genesis can't understand the world we live in unless you understand the, the book of Genesis, where there's so much of the beginning of things that have continued through continued through society. So anyway, we'll, we'll, I'm getting off the subject here, but let's go back to Isaiah 27 here. So God is showing, you know, there's, there's going to be this, there's still going to be the ruins that have to be rebuilt. People will come back to God, and there's this activity that will have to occur when Jesus Christ returns to, um, returns to earth. And then in verse 12, he talks about this gathering that's going to happen. Here are those three words. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river, that's the Euphrates, to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, children of Israel. You know, God knows exactly where his people are. He knows exactly where Israel is. And when, you know, he says that one by one, I'm going to bring you back to the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll be brought back there. He knows exactly where his people are. And in verse 13, so it shall be in that day. Here's the great trumpet, right? We 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 celebrate the the the, the day of the Feast of Trumpets. You know, we read about that a little bit back in Leviticus uh, 23 in the Holy Days. Very little said about trumpets then, but later on in Numbers 10, we read about what the purpose of the trumpets in Israel were. We see the trumpeteer. We talk about a trumpet, Jesus Christ, and the Olivet Prophecy. And, of course, in the book of Revelation, we see what those trumpets are, you know, at the, at the time of the end leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. Little by little, little by little, God reveals what his plan is. 
for mankind and for this earth. So it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. So he gives some clues of where his people, you know, the, his people, when he talks about his people, it's the Israel, right? The Israel who, who yielded to God, the, the, the uh, descendants of Abraham, where they are. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. They're about to perish, but God says not all of them will be wiped out. There's that remnant that's there. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. And they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt. Yeah, there's some of the outcasts that will be over there in Egypt. They were there, you know, when at the time of the Jerusalem's fall to Babylon, some fled to Egypt. Apparently in that day, there will be some in the land of Egypt, too, or wherever God, this the spiritual Egypt is, of course, we know that spiritual Egypt is the world we live in, too, when you get into the New Testament times. And they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. They will come back there, and then we have that beautiful picture that we have in Isaiah, too, that, you know, everyone will come, everyone will come to the mountain of the house, or the house, the, mount, the mountain of the Lord, the Mount Zion, to worship, to worship God. And so you have out of this devastation, you always have the hope, the beautiful, the beautiful world where Jesus Christ returns and he truly brings peace, complete peace, harmony, joy to a world that has been absolutely battered, all because of their choice to follow Satan and not, not yield to God. So we come to chapter 27, the end of it. Let me look at my um notes here for just a minute. Yeah, we should look at um, Jeremiah 30 in 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 relation to that, into uh, the last few verses there. Jeremiah 30. You know, we've we've been in this chapter before where it talks about the time of Jacob's trouble and how this fear and trembling comes on. It's this time that that is there, but in verse eight, in verses eight through eleven, we see God bringing the people back we have you know these these verses if we can if we can place ourselves in verses five six and seven and see and imagine what it would be like when you're living in a time of peace and you're not prepared for war and the devastation that comes from it and the terror that comes from it and then in verse eight it's always god who brings out to the other side comparing it to what it's like the pain that a woman goes through when she's bearing a child but then the joy that's there when that child is born in verse eight then following this terrible time of Jacob's trouble. It says, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck. That would be Assyria that we were talking about, or Egypt, or wherever, wherever, wherever God's people have been, that, that they've been in captivity. I will break his yoke from your neck. I will burst and burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Therefore, don't fear. Oh, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, don't be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. See the hope, see the, see the promises of God, for I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. Remember that? We read all those prophecies where God says, 
complete decimation, but not for Israel. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice, and I will not let you all go altogether unpunished. So you see God bringing his people, bringing his people back. They will be an example to the rest of the world. They will be that holy nation that, that exemplifies God's way of life when they come back. Let's also turn forward to the book of Amos. Remember, Amos is a um, contemporary of, of Isaiah um, as well. In Amos 1.1, we see the same kings that Amos was prophesying under that, that Isaiah was. And if we look at the last, uh, last chapter of Isaiah, or not Isaiah, of Amos, Amos 9, In verse 13, well, let's look at verse, um, let's look at verses 11 as well. On that day, Amos 9, 11, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins. I will rebuild it as in the days of old. Dropping down to verse 13, behold, the days are coming, says the eternal, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They will build the waste cities and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink wine from them, and they will make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So we have these sure words from God. You know, later on in Isaiah, you'll remember verse chapter 45 verse or chapter 55, where God says, my word, when it goes out, it won't come back to me void. It will happen exactly the way I said. And we've already seen in the prophecies in chapters 13 to 23 of those that have been fulfilled this is exactly the way that God said they would be fulfilled. When we speak of Babylon, when we speak of Tyre, and we see the improbable things that happened with these cities, and yet it is exactly the way God said, even naming Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus was born and citing in verse chapter 45, see, I have named you before you ever were. So Israel, people everywhere, trust trust in God because his word is absolutely sure and he will make it come, come to pass. Okay, let me pause. Any, any questions on chapter seven? We'll, 27, we'll move into um, chapter 28. We'll get into some prophecies here that appear to be end time prophecies um, leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit here. First one is gonna be about Ephraim. Ephraim, you know, all, uh, all of Israel, God's people, so. Mr. Shaby? Yeah, Floyd. Yes, sir. <clears throat> you read a verse in Jeremiah where it talks about God, um, the, the prophets, when he sends them, they rise early and he sends them. There's meaning behind that. And I believe it is you have a mission to do, do it and get busy with it and don't waver. The other thing is, I feel I would like to have your thoughts on this. Do you think the delivery will be more forceful, powerful in th days to come? Like the prophets, when they were sent, the two witnesses, when they speak, I mean, is it going to be more direct? You mean what you we're know? doing now? Maybe, yeah, that's, I had someone may, mentioned about how Mr. Armstrong, when he preached, he was a voice crying out in the wilderness and that he didn't feel maybe that we might have been doing that since Mr. Armstrong passed away. 
but I feel that the delivery might change towards the later days. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Uh, you know, I mean, God will lead us where he wants to, but I, yes, I believe the delivery has to be stronger. I, I mean, we have, we have to make, we have to make a statement. We have to be able to say what is really going on and not just kind of couch it in terms God expects people to be bold. You look at the his, you look at the examples of the apostles, they were bold, right? They spoke boldly. We know the truth and we need to be proclaiming it boldly, especially in a world now where it just seems to be disintegrating so quickly. I mean, there are lies that are just out there. I mean, we have people that are exposing things in the world. We can see things going on in the world. And God does say, cry aloud, spare not, right? Tell my people their sin. Now we God will lead us into that. But yes, I, I do believe the message is going to be much stronger in, in the years ahead. So. Yeah, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Edgardo, then Bob. Okay. Uh, that verse 13 there that closes the, the chapter is, is interesting because the mention of the great trumpet, it's almost an unmistakable time marker mm -hmm. of when this, this thing should probably be happening. But then the reference to both Assyria and Egypt, when you think about uh, ancient Israel, the, the context of, of them with these nations is that they were slaves in those nations. And uh, if you apply the, I guess, the type and anti-type uh, uh, co concept, it, it possible that what's suggesting here is that they will have to come out of those, whatever those nations are now, it's more an indication of the, or the status than even their location, you know, they'll probably be under subjugation at that time, and God has to take them out of that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Bible talks about being captive, right? It's, it's hard for us to imagine captivity, but the Bible sure indicates that, right? And bringing people back, bringing back, of course, that's the, the, the land over in the Middle East that they were they were promised, but yeah, Bob? Uh, yes, Mr. Shavey, this, this is in reference to verse 11, where it uh -huh. says, hello? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, this is in verse 11 where it says, for these people have no understanding. So uh, in general, the world doesn't know what we understand. But back in the 90s, uh, when, the, when the apostasy started, uh, the writers of the, the worldwide news, they were laughing at the British and uh, uh, U.S. and Britain prophecy booklet. And they said they're looking for extra biblical stuff. So those were the writings of those apostates in 1995. They didn't believe uh, that stuff, so they didn't. They threw out their understanding. And curiously, last week, uh, I read the news uh, from Jerusalem Post that King Charles will be crowned and will be consecrated with oil, anointed with oil from Jerusalem, the ones that are grown in Jerusalem. And so uh, we understand that, but. Uh, some people threw the understanding out there, so that just struck me when I saw verse 11. Yep. It's interesting you bring that up, right? Because we have the series of Beyond Today programs, and we're going to be doing some 30-second ads on on networks across across there because we're going to talk. We're going to talk about that coronation. This is, you know, kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity to kind of throw the the truth of God out there in no uncertain terms. And so we have this a series of five programs we're going to be advertising, but you have that anointing oil to tie those things right back to David. And what is this? Why, why this throne? What is this throne over in England? Why is it so popular? Why is it so visible? And tie that right back to the throne that Jesus Christ will be. So 
that'll be that'll be coming out here i mean in the next actually in the next month i think in the middle of april is when we're beginning those programs and starting that advertising uh in a lot of ways to to throw that truth back out there to people so now we think you know, we, we think the way the ads are going to be that it'll draw people to the program and to the website where we can kind of chronicle you know about the kingdom of god and the return of jesus christ so mr shaby yes sir this is great. Uh, it's interesting that anointing and everything that all will come from the vicinity of uh, Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, how, how everything ties back there is kind of undeniable. I mean, you have to have your eyes closed if you don't see the, the, the tie between the throne of England and, and, and Israel. But uh, that'll be pointed out. But I'm sure people will have their have their well, maybe some some will hear and and, and see the truth of the Bible. That's what we're gonna going to tie it to in God's word so okay let's move on to to chapter 28 then you know God um again the, the, the these prophecies that we go into for the next the next five six chapters here are, are quite quite pointed you know they're not the same as the prophecies we read in chapters 13 to 23 they had to do with some nations but as we're going to look through these we're going to see that these are more not the same as they were back then, not not all about the then fulfillment. We've already had that foundation that what God says will happen will happen. But these are going to be talking about what's happening as we lead up to the return of Jesus Christ. So in verse one, you know, God begins with woe. Here's what's going to happen. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. So when he talks about the crown of pride. I mean, we think of crowns. I mean, we think of pride. And Ephraim, in this in this case, is talking about Israel. You know, sometimes God will use Ephraim as just all of Israel, just like sometimes it's Jeshurun, sometimes it's Jacob. But here's Ephraim, and and Ephraim is going to be this proud, this proud nation on earth, right? And so we we look at the world around us today, and we see America, and we see, I mean, we see pride, right? We believe we are invincible. We no longer really, you know, the nation itself doesn't really look at the, the blessings that we have come from God, so we yield to him. We more and more about ourselves. So we have this enormous pride that the whole world, you know, pride that blinds and pride that leads you into, into a fall, as it tells us in, in there. And we have this crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim. Now, I'm going to say, you know, you know when we get into, into these chapters here and you look at the commentaries of the world, they don't get... They don't get the return of Jesus Christ. They don't get who Israel is at the end of the age. They don't get the Jesus Christ returning and bringing Israel back to their promised land. Some of these prophecies they think were fulfilled, that they're only about Jews, and were filled, fulfilled in 1948 when the little nation of Israel in the Middle East there began. And some of those, that, 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 some were brought back, but this is talking about the house of Israel and not just Judah. So we have the crown of pride. We're going to have this pride that marks marks God's people, his his the 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 people of Israel, to the drunkards of Ephraim. And as I read the the commentary, some of them just say, you know, they're given they're given to intoxicating drink. And of course, you know, there's there's that physical part of intoxication, but really, it's the spiritual drunkenness that we're going to talk about here as we talk about in, in drunkards, because God talks about drunkenness not just about drinking too much wine or too much, you know, hard liquor or whatever, but the spiritual drunkenness. We have that symbolism throughout the New Testament. 
And it's a very, it's a very telling thing that we have when we get into there. When we talk about the drunkenness of that, and probably even as I say drunkenness, it's going to, it's going to conjure up some, some thoughts about in your mind about drunkenness. Let me get to that a little bit when we get to verse two, though. Let me go on through here. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. They've become drunk. You know, when we're intoxicated, we don't think straight. We don't make right decisions. We we go off and do things that we would never do if we were sane and if we had our, our wits about us. Just like if we go, if we depart from God's way and we're not living by his Holy Spirit, and we, de we, we default to our old way of doing things. We're going to make silly mistakes, do things that we regret. But when we're led by God's Holy Spirit, we make right decisions. We see the right thing when we're led by God. So we've got this drunkenness that, that God is talking about. And then he talks about this fading beauty that's there among Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. You know what? What nation, what group of nations has been more beautiful than the English-speaking nations of the earth for the last, you know, 200 years? You had the British Empire that was you know, the, the toast of the world. You have America that's a beautiful country physically that has been just a light to the world. The government that God has allowed to be here has been a blessing to all the world around us. We are blessed to live in a time like this, enjoy blessings that we're told that no other nation has ever enjoyed in this time. But their glorious beauty, and beauty isn't just about the physical, right? There's the spirit in a people as well. Their glorious beauty is a fading flower. Now, the Bible talks about fading flowers. It talks about man being a fading flower, the grass that withers away. You know, we're born, we go through our childhood, into adolescence, young adulthood. You know, there's there's the vibrance, there's the strength, there's the beauty as we build our career and build our lives. And then, then our lives begin to wane and the beauty begins to fade and the strength begins to fade. So, you know, let's, let's look at a, a few of those because God uses the similar analogies throughout the Bible to pick the picture of what he's looking at. So keep your finger there in Isaiah 28. Let's go forward to Isaiah 40. Because again, as we go through the book of Isaiah, we come back to these, these, same, these same concepts and these same analogies over and over again as God progresses this book to the end of it, where he talks about the, um, you know, the, the kingdom of God in Isaiah 40. In verse 6, um, verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, well, what will I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, we all disappear. Our vitality wanes, we die, but the word of our God stands forever. And that speaks to God's purpose. We have a time here on earth, and this is just part of what God has in mind for us. His will is that all will yield to him, all will repent, all will be able to receive the gift of eternal life. The word of our God stands forever. David talks about the same thing. If we go back to Psalm 103, again, among the, you know, the, the people that God inspired and the words that we have written before us, it's the same inspiration, the same God who's, who's writing, writing these um, verses. Um, Isaiah, or not Isaiah, Psalm 103, verse 
Let's begin in verse 11. I'm going to come down to verse 15. It's always good to get the context. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When we repent and turn to God, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the eternal is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. God's mercy is sure. His word lasts forever to those who yield to him and adopt his way of life. Now I turn back to Isaiah. I hope you're still in Psalm. Let's look at Psalm 90 as well. Psalm 90 and verse 5. Well, just, I'm just going to read 5. You could read 3 and 4 or later as well, but first 5. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they're like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it's cut down and withers. So we have, you know, we have these these continuing analogies. You know, the time of Isaiah, they would have had some of these psalms. So when Isaiah is saying this, is like, you know, well, yeah, our time on earth is is there. But here's here's this nation. Here's Ephraim. They're a beautiful nation, but they fade. They've been beautiful. They've been productive, but it's all gotten to their minds. They no longer. They no longer give God credit for anything that he has done. They become pride, proud. We could turn to all those verses about pride comes before a fall, leads to destruction, and so their beauty fades. Yeah, Xavier? Hi, Brother Chibi. Uh we, we read that last week, who the king of, of such is when we behave like that or when a person practices such. Mm-hmm. And what was it? Job 41. The Job king, yeah, he's, king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. he's king over the children of pride, Satan is. Yep. Yep. Very good. Okay, so let's go back to Isaiah 28. We get the picture of what God is talking about here. We got a nation that has been vibrant, exciting, beautiful. It's beginning to fade. If we've got our eyes open, we see that happening. You know, in our nation today, it's becoming less and less vibrant. It's beginning to fade. Even hear some of the commentators on the news talking about our decline. I heard that from a commentator and it caught my ears, you know. We are in a state of decline. Even they see what's going on in the world around us. I hope we all have our eyes wide open as well. Let me just read verse one and finish it up here. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys. To those who are overcome with wine. So, you know, throughout this chapter, we're going to come back to this intoxicating drink. So let's pause there and look at this intoxicating drink. What does it do to men? We know what it does physically, but there are some verses about that, right? Let's go to Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 is about the virtuous woman, but what the lead-in uh, chapters in it is, uh, is a mother telling her son who will be king, 
here's a, here's the pitfalls to be watching out for, right? And then she tells him, well, this is the, if you can find a woman like this, she's worth more than rubies. But leading up to, um, um, leading up to that, here's what she tells him. Proverbs 31, verse 4. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. Well, doesn't mean you should never have a drink. No, what she's talking about is don't get drunk because you, you lose your wits at that point. Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the aff afflicted. So she's saying this is what happens. If you, if you get drunk, people can lure you into something. You make some decisions that aren't wise. Watch what's going on. Now, she's talking about intoxicating drink, the wine, the wine of the world. And it's a it's a thing to be to be um, aware of. We could go to Hosea, Hosea, you know, forward in, in the Bible. Hosea comes after um, Daniel. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea and verse chapter four and verse 11. And remember, Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah as well. The same four kings that Isaiah was prophesying under, Hosea prophesied as well. So they were saying similar things, as you would expect the people of God do, all speaking the same thing. So here in chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. Hmm. They enslave the heart. And he throws harlotry in there. Is it just harlotry physically? Physical harlotry? No. No, we know that if we come back, if we go to the end, end of the Bible, the time right before Jesus Christ's return, we see wine. We see this drunkenness, what it leads to, and the abominations that, that it, it, it um, results in. Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Of course, we've talked about the beast power before. We've done a Bible study, but we went through all the book of Revelation. So we remember these things, and you remember them from sermons you've heard as we've gone through the fall holy days. Um, let's just pick it up in verse 1 here. We're going to read through the first six verses, but we're going to see this analogy in living color, if you will, at the end time. And it's not there talking about physical wine, but the spiritual intoxication, the spiritual drunkenness, the spiritual wine that people drink that leads to an awful society. Chapter 17, verse one, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Spiritual harlotry, it's talking about here. The nations have committed harlotry with this, this Babylon mystery religion, Babylon, the society that's extant at that time. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. They reveled in all the evil that was going on at that time. They were made drunk. They lost their senses. You know, you look at the world around us today, and I, you know, some of the things I think we have to just marvel and think, what has happened to the world? How can they call this good? How is that? It's like, it's like, but they're drinking from some wine cup that you and I are not familiar with. 
uh, and we need to remain that way and stay apart from the world and not try to figure out what they're doing because they are drinking from a cup that is absolutely going to lead to nothing but misery. With whom the and, and the inhabitants of the earth were, earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman, church, sitting on a scarlet beast, which is full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Not of God, power derives from Satan, as we read in Revelation 13. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Here we have this wine cup, and the world is drinking from it. All the evil it spews out, all the things that they put into their minds. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. What satisfied them? Killing God's people, wiping out his truth, destroying anything about God they can. We know from Revelation 13, it's the power of Satan is this. Satan is always dedicated to wipe out God and his people at any, at any cost. And the world has gone mad at this time because they are drunk with the blood of the saints. They are drunk with the abominations that's being poured out of the media, poured out of the powers that be at that time, and they have lost all their senses. And so when we look at Isaiah 28, when we look at the world before at the time before Jesus Christ returns, and we look at Isaiah 28, we see the, the people of Ephraim, the people, God's people who he has richly blessed, who did know God, who he has given, he has given blessings and even his word to, um, you know, they've become drunk. They've lost their minds, if you will. Now, this is certainly an end time thing. Happened, of course, when they turned from God. But this is a different feel in this thing. To those who are overcome with wine, they no longer see clearly. Let's go back to Isaiah 28, verse 2. Behold, behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one. Well, in the old days, and in the time of, of ancient Israel, the mighty and strong one was Assyria. And he used Assyria to conquer Israel, he used Babylon to conquer Judah when they would not when they would not yield to God and they wouldn't listen to the words that he had to say, listen to the prophets that were there where they were crying aloud and sparing not and telling the people their sins, but they wouldn't listen. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm. You know, again, yeah, hail is one of those things, it's, it's rare in our lives, but it's destructive when it comes. So when the Bible talks about hail, it's it's talking about, you know, this this army, this 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 stuff that happens, right? Like a tempest of hail and a destroying star, storm. We don't have to turn back to Joel 2. We've been in Joel 2 other times where it talks about this army that marches forward and everything before it loses its color. They run in fear because it's a devastating, it's a devastating army. But the interesting thing is when you when you look at this hail, you see this back in Revelation as well. God uses the same analogy about this hail back in Revelation 16. In verse 21, you know, right before chapter 17 that we just read in chapter 16, um, 
talking about the bowls, those the, the bowls of the seventh trumpet, that trumpet that those trumpets that sound and the trumpet that sounds when Jesus Christ is re, about to return to the earth that we read about in the end of chapter 27, in 21 of Revelation 16, it says, a great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of the talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Now, that's a literal hail, but here we have the hail. So maybe it is a literal hail that God is talking about here, but he's talking about these, this strong one that's going to come, like a tempest of hail. It's going to be devastating. This, in Revelation 16, 21, it's a torment on people. And, and so this torment comes. It will come like a tempest of hail, a destroying storm. You know, I think we've all lived in places where there's been destroying storms. Last week, I think it was last week, there was these windstorms that came through Ohio. And you can see the destruction of, 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 of that when you look at the devastation that happens in some areas because of it. Because the wind just comes in and, and blows everything down. People were without power, which is a, a trial you know, when, when that happens with us, and that's just minor compared to what's going to happen. But God has a mighty and strong one. He says in Jeremiah, Jer people of Judah, turn back to me. There's someone that's, you know, from the north. Watch what's going on here. Like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Just devastating. Like flood storms come through. When you see those pictures, it just wipes out everything, everything in its, in its path like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. Well, they're awfully proud. They think nothing can nothing can overthrow them. Can't possibly fall. Economy's too strong. Military whites too much. Endless money. We can print it from now until forever, and we're never going to run out of money, and nothing can affect us. But all these things happen, and it says, God... Will bring them down to the earth with his hand because he says, as we've read in Obadiah and other places, any lofty thing will be brought low. The crown of pride, he repeats it, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valley. Goes back and he repeats what he does in verse one for emphasis, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. Oh, I missed the first there, which is that, that the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it's still in his hand. It's an interesting, interesting verse that God puts there at the end of it when he repeats about the fading flower like the first fruit before the summer. Well, of course, in the in, in Israel fig trees, you would have these, uh, hold on just Becky, Becky, let me finish this thought and then I'll be with you. The, the, the fig trees, and you would get some early figs. And so before the figs would be ripe at the end of the summer and people would just eat those figs because they were kind of like, this is the time for picking. It's kind of a foretaste of what would, would be coming. When I look at this verse, the commentaries don't really help in understanding what it is, except that, except something that will happen, be like the first fruit and snatch it up. Don't wait. Take it while it's there and don't wait for the rest of the fruit. And I have to wonder when I see the comment about a fading flower and a people that are drunk and decisions that are getting made and 
And you kind of look at this fading flower and no longer the zenith of power, no longer the wisdom that was there, no longer the no longer the courage, no longer the the saneness of a people, but a people that has gone completely astray in their thoughts and their actions. And could it be that what God is saying there is that this is a fading flower, and when this the floods come, when the tempest comes, when all these things come that will bring them down, could it be, could it be that that first fruit, let's take it while it's there and not wait any longer? Let's not wait for the fig tree to be fully in bloom. Let's take the fruit now and eat it up while it's in his hand. And could it indicate, could it indicate that this suddenly, the sudden destruction of, of Israel, the sudden destruction of his people will come just at a time when the world or these, these things that come against it think now's the time. Now's the time to do that. There's no, no reason to wait any longer. That's just some speculation, but something to, to, to think about when you read these verses and know where it's going, where, you know, where we are and how far we've come down, not just in America, but the whole world in the last three years, how, how far, far different in every way, shape and form everything is in the world today than it was even three years ago. Now, Becky, I made you wait for a while, but Becky, are you still there? Do you want to make a comment? You're fine. It was just on the hail. I was on, oh, okay. Joke, joke 38. It reminded me of joke 38. Um, 20. I lost 22. Okay, Have you entered houses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which are reserved for the times of trouble? Oh, yeah. But, we read that last week, too. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah we were just there, 22. but it still, yeah, it reminded me of it again was all. Okay. Okay. Very good. Oh, yeah, Dale. Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I thought of drunkenness and the, you know, Nadab and Abayu, how they mm -hmm. offer strange incense. And uh, if I could quote a verse here, uh, God's warning to, you know, those who are called, I guess we can apply it to us, it says, do not drink wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It should be a statute forever throughout the generations. So, Seems like uh, Nadab and Abai were, were likely, uh, I can't say 100%, but they were likely, uh, you, you know, drunk. They weren't uh, sound-minded in what they were doing. Their, sense, their senses were dulled, right? Now, when our senses are dulled, we, we make decisions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, just one other scripture that I might hear. Talk about how we're so gone astray. And it says in Rome, Romans chapter 1, you know, about the reprobate mind. Yeah. Uh, of course, that, uh, that applies to sexual immorality, but I, I think it would apply to other things as well, would you? I, 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 yes, it is a, a mind that becomes totally corrupt in every way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, just it, just one other brief comment about the the word the word reprobate. Looked uh, at the uh, Greek, it uh, part of the meaning seems to be spiritually or morally useless. That's a good way to phrase. That's a good way. Yeah. To phrase it. Yeah. Totally useless. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Thank yep. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Becky. Uh, just on what Dale was saying, I don't know where it is right offhand, but there is the verse that talks about how our conscience can become seared. Yeah. Basically, you know, corrupt, we're corrupted beyond what, in my opinion, is fixable yeah. at this point. So it, that reminds me of what Dale was saying. Yeah. 
that's in Tim, First Timothy. I don't know this chapter verse, but it's in First Timothy. There, we got to be conscious conscious that we don't let our consciences become seared because then we, they can't be re rehealed, right? We we yeah we we lose our our sense. So, okay, how much time do we got here? Let, let's 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 do a couple more verses, and um, because in verse five here we say in that day, right? So leading up from all these first four verses we've had in chapter twenty eight, we come to in that day, the Lord of hosts. We have a nation that. God is blessed. It was beautiful. It has faded. It has, it has become drunk on all the things. And, you know, it's been eaten up while it's still in his hand. But in that day, verse 5, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. Well, his kingdom will come. There was a beautiful kingdom there for a while that God was blessing. It lost its way, but Christ will return. There will be a beautiful kingdom that shows up that will truly be beautiful, truly be righteous, truly lead people to a way of life that will be a lasting way of life of, of everything good. And that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Well, this clearly end time, right? Because, you know, we, we, we could go back to Isaiah 6, where God defines what the remnant of that people is in um, in verse uh, 13 of Isaiah 6, yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as the terebinth tree doors and oak. So we've talked about that several times. So here he's talking about this remnant again. It's after the destruction. Not all of Israel will be destroyed and the people, but the remnant will return. We see this continuing to show up in, in these prophecies. So this is clearly end time. The Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Well, we know that Jesus Christ, you know, he is the, he is the ultimate, he is the, um, ultimate judge, right? He is the perfect judge. You know, we even see in, in the world around us today, justice that is only given based on party lines. We see that more and more in justices, right? It's like, well, what what kind of judge do you have? Because he's going to make it based on what his beliefs are, which may be different than this guy's belief. And, and you have this perverted justice that we see emerging in our country that we didn't think we could ever see, but we see that happening around us. But Jesus Christ is the He's the righteous judge. We can turn to some verses there, um, the spirit of justice, and we, we, I guess we actually should. Let's go forward because Isaiah talks about this later on as well. So Isaiah 51, Isaiah 51 and verse uh, five, I think it is. Verse... Yeah, let's pick it up in verse four. Isaiah 51, verse four, listen to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for law will proceed from me. This is God speaking, right? I will set the laws. And his laws aren't there to just kind of clamp us down and to, sub, you know, to subdue us. His laws are there to set us free so we can enjoy life and enjoy all the things that people always say they want. The only way to achieve that, happiness, joy, peace, unity, is through living God's way. Law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the people's. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands, now notice that, 
you know, when you draw the picture of where are the English speaking people today that, you know, fulfill those prophecies of Genesis 49, their lands are pretty blessed with coastlands. England has more coast than any other nation in Europe. America is blessed with coastlands. Australia is blessed with coastlands. Canada is blessed with coastlands, right? Myra, um, the coastlands will wait upon me and on my arm, they will trust. You know, God, God is a God of, of justice. Um, let me get, well, let's turn back to Psalm 67. I got some others here as well, but, but I don't want to take too much more of your time. We'll, we'll finish up here, but let's go back to Psalm 67. Psalm 67, then we'll talk about the gates and then we'll we'll close for the night. We didn't get nearly as far as I thought we would tonight, but that's okay. We should take this slowly and, and make sure we understand it. Psalm 67, verse four. Well, you know what? I, again, let me, let's just read the first four verses. I, I hate to just pull one verse out till we, so we can see the whole context. Part of this, part of the Bible studies is to see the word of God and how it all interacts with one another and, and flows so perfectly. Verse one, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Selah. God will be the righteous judge. And that day, justice will be exactly justice. No one will be able to look at God and say, that wasn't fair. You didn't base that on, on anything. Everyone, there will be no partiality. Judgment and justice will be exactly the way it should be, something that we see quickly fading from the world around us, right? Uh, Mr. Shady, which scripture was that, please? That was Psalm 67, verse 4. Thank you. So we go back to, to verse 8 here, or verse 6 in, ch in chapter 28 of Isaiah. And for strength, he says, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. So when Christ returns, he will be the righteous judge. People who will be sitting in those seats will be Led by his Holy Spirit, they will judge righteous judgment under him, and he will be for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. When you turn back the battle at the gate, you're guarding the way into your country, right? You turn the battle back. I'm not going to let that enter into my gates. So we can we can think about where God talks about gates, right? He talks about the Sabbath day, for instance, in Exodus 20. No work will be done within your gates. Keep the commandment in your gates. Make sure that in your gates, evil, sin, departure from God's way doesn't happen in your gates. You can't control what goes on in the outside world, but in our gates, we can turn back that battle and make sure that, you know, there's nothing going on there that, that can't happen or that should happen the other six days a week, but not on the, at the Sabbath day. In Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17, you know, we see this word, um, we see this word show up many times in Jeremiah 17. Do I have the right scripture there? Yeah, Jeremiah 17, verse, verse 19. 
Yeah, let's just read through of these because here, you know, when God says turn back the battle at the gates, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem had gates, the cities of old have gates, we have gates that we need to turn back the battle and in our territories, righteousness is what we always stand for and not let it come in. It's very interesting in Jeremiah 17, 19 through the next several verses, how God talks about that in relation to the Sabbath day. 19, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say to them, hear the word of the eternal, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves, bear no burden on the Sabbath day. Don't bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Don't carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they didn't obey, nor inclined their ear, but they made their necks stiff that they might not hear or receive instruction. You know, that's the resistance that we talk about, right? When we talk about Ahaz, he was a very resistant king. I'm just not going to listen to what God says. I don't want anything from him. And we have to be on guard that we don't let that come to us and have our next, next, next step that we just don't listen to what God has to say. It shall be if you hear, heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work on it. Then shall enter the gates of this city, kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes accompanied by the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. So we could go on, but you know, in, the, in those verses, it talks about those gates, and God uses the Sabbath day. You know, we that Sabbath day, keeping the things holy in God, and that He has called us to live our lives in deference and in holiness to Him, and respect what He has, and in our gates to make sure we're living that way. And when we do it, He will bring that blessing. So. I think in chapter 28 here, we're going to end in verse 6 for tonight. He will be for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Don't let it in. Don't let the world and its ideas and its compromise and its, its Laodicean attitudes into your life. Keep the word of God carefully, diligently, exactly. Know it and practice it and stand in the gap, as it says in Ezekiel, for that. Now, I'll, I'll just reference because Dale, Dale talked about um, wine and preaching. And in verse 7, we get into that, right? Because God does have, for, for ministers, kind of a thing about not taking intoxicating drink when you're about to teach the Word of God. Make sure you've got a very, very clear head when you're, when you're doing that. So let, let's just stop there for, for tonight, and I'll open it up for any other discussion or any other questions we have. But we'll pick it up in verse seven, verse 7 next week. Yeah, Betsy. Betsy, you're going to have, yeah, there you go. I, I, a, I have a header in Psalm 67. Uh -huh. I don't know where or when it came from, but I've got commission of the church. And it really does fit what the church's commission is. There you go. Yeah, it, it really does. Yeah, that that's that's excellent. Very good. Beautiful. Thank mm -hmm. you. Anything else, anyone? Um, just to just to mention to Becky, I, I think it's First Timothy four verse two about the conscience seared with a hot iron. Mm -hmm. 
First Timothy 4 2. Hear that, Becky? Very good. Okay. Uh, yeah, Xavier. Well, Shavy, um, your picture was clear, but your picture did jump from your screen to Maggie's screen for a second. Huh. But um, separate from that, uh, we read where it says Babylon, the great is um, drunk with the, with the blood of the saints. Mm -hmm. But we know that um, the adversary in the system doesn't love any man or woman, anyone of mankind, because Revelation 20, uh, 18, 24 tells us that in her is found the blood of not only the saints and the prophets, but everyone who's ever been slain in the earth. Yeah, that's a good point to remember. Satan would like all of mankind dead, <laughs> right? He, he, would, he wants to wipe out mankind because of the future that God has planned for mankind and potential. Yeah, good point for us to remember. Uh, yeah, sure. mm -hmm. yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, the uh, English-speaking countries, Canada, Australia, um, Britain, and U.S., God, you know, God-fearing countries are turning their back on God at alarming rate, turning away from him. And that's why he turned them over to a debased mind, because they didn't want to retain him in their knowledge. And that's why I think we see so unsound thinking, because you can't think straight once God turns you over to debased mind. Yep. You're exactly right. Romans 1 is, is clearly, I was there for the Gentile nations, right? It explained what that happened to it. It clearly explains what's going on in the world today. When you turn against God and you don't want him anymore, that's what you descend into. So, okay. Okay, well, let me let you all go. It's very, it's been, thank you for all being here tonight. Great to be with you. I always say this is a highlight of my life. So, uh, highlight of my week. So, it's always good to be with you and everything. Um so everyone have a have a wonderful rest of the week. We'll see those of you in Cincinnati this week. And the rest of you will look forward to seeing you next Wednesday, okay? Hi, Pastor Shady. Okay. Thank you very much, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. See you, Xavier. Thanks see you guys. Bye. Have a good evening. Bye. You too, Jim and Lisa. Cheers. Yep.